Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and you're listening to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the latest consumer deals. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or not accredited. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is James Courier, founder and general partner of NFX. NFX is a VC firm investing in pre-seed and seed stage startups. Some of their investments include DoorDash, Lyft, and Outdoorsy. We focus this conversation on maybe the biggest tech trend in 2022. We discuss how much opportunity is there for startups versus the major players like Google and the Microsofts of the world. Which layer of AI provides the most value and much, much, much more. Please note, we do discuss OpenAI, but this conversation was recorded prior to their $10 billion deal with Microsoft. Without further ado, here's James. James, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Um, So what is, I know that we're going to focus on this conversation of generative AI, which is very much becoming um, kind of a gold rush, very, very hot. A lot of people are are talking about it and wanted to know a bit of the history and what the difference is between analytical AI um, versus uh, generative AI. 
Yeah. So analytical AI helps you determine if something is what you think it is. So for instance, if you have some machine vision and you're looking at a manufacturing line, you want to see if that part is broken or if it's perfect. Analytical AI will tell you that. And most of the money that was being made from a startup perspective or from a product perspective over the last 15 years has been driving in that direction. What is happening now is that the models of um, synthesis that we've had for a long time have been supercharged with more uh, storage and more processing power. And so suddenly they are transformed, right? We've hit a part of the curve in synthetic AI that allows them to generate stuff that we recognize as being nearly human, writing, images, video, voice. It's close enough to human now so that it's kind of shocking. It's kind of a wow. That point is just a point on the curve. And we are now in that steep part of the curve where every two months, some giant new innovation makes it even more uh, amazing to us as humans to absorb whatever this uh, AI was synthesizing. And um, and that's that's really what everyone's excited about now. So in terms of generative AI, it's it actually starts with the actual you know technology that actually is able to produce it, rather than analytical. It's kind of going off of what the what the human is actually um, doing. Is that is is that roughly correct? Um, well, no. I mean, you both have you have AIs. Would you train the AI to to see the part on the manufacturing line the way you want it to be seen? So you will have a human go through 100,000 examples. It will train itself on that and it'll learn what it's looking for. The same thing is kind of happening with generative, but instead what it's doing is it's looking at a giant corpus rather than trying to find one thing to analyze and to identify is it yes or no. It's now looking at a corpus and then creating something brand new uh, from a multiplicity of sources rather than focusing in on one thing. So it's from like it's it's taken in from a language or you know a, a much larger data set with with maybe billions of 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 data points to actually produce it. That's right. It's like it's it's looking for it's basically saying create something similar to these other things and then ask the question well what's similar and you're like well here's 100,000 articles to read or here's 10 million photos to look at and like okay similar to that and it started noticing the patterns and now it's just producing stuff that's similar to that thing you already showed it. And what's what's the history of generative AI and how do we get to this point now where it seems like this is kind of a gold rush? It seems like it, there's a lot of, lot of hype uh, behind it. Yeah. So the mathematical models underlying what we see today have been around for 20 years, maybe even 30 or 40 years. It's not new math necessarily. It's literally new computational power. That's what's changed. And originally, uh, we look, we were going to cross this threshold now, whether it was OpenAI or whether it was Google or whether it was Microsoft or whether it was, you know, the, the government of the United Kingdom. Like we were crossing this threshold now. It's literally just math. We're just riding the curve. Humanity was supposed to do this at this time. Turns out OpenAI was the first one to do it. Um, they came out with GPT-1, which was an attempt to really crunch a lot of examples into uh, their model. That was meh. They came out with GPT-2, which was actually quite good. And then GPT-3 was remarkable. And that's still what we're kind of living off right now. Uh, GPT-4 is coming. And that all happened maybe three years ago. 
and then GPT two was uh, GPT three was about two years ago, and what happened was in March of two thousand twenty two, uh, an open source project came along to replicate that, and then make it much cheaper. And so by August of this year, the price point had come down a hundred x, and that allowed for a whole lot of experimentation to take place, and that's the Cambrian explosion that you're seeing now. At the same time, in July, um, Dolly was opened up for images. So then OpenAI opened up their image uh, generalized model, and that just blew everyone away. And very quickly, it was followed by you know Midjourney and other people doing something similar. Again, the price points just dropped dramatically. You have three or four different accesses into these generalized models. So both text and images starts looking amazing. It starts looking like humans made them or wrote them. And that just, we started seeing that, I don't, I don't know, about eight months ago, but now the price points have come down about six months ago, four months ago. And that's what's causing the explosions. That's where we are in the history of it. And so where, in terms of like the actual stack, so you have you have, especially on the on, on the open source side, you you have this the language that is based off of GPT three um, or is a clone of of GPT three. But and then and then you actually the opportunity is off uh, is the applications based off of um, the language. Is that is that right? Well, that's it. That's a great question. There's a lot of VCs putting a lot of money into the underlying models, like AI twenty one and Israel's got a good model. Um, you know, uh, Stable Diffusion's got a great model. There, there's lots of venture money pouring into this base layer, and uh, or, or or what we call the gener- the generalized AI models, right? The the general ones. It's it's not clear to me how those guys end up building a sustainable network effects embedded business because what we're seeing over the last two years is that you might be paying open AI money, but then you can go to AI 21 and pay one tenth and then you go to the open source ones and pay one tenth of that. And the price points are just going to keep coming down. And eventually the models will just live on your smartphone. You'll download it for three ninety nine, and then you'll have it. Okay. And, and so it's, so it, it's not clear to me, although it's obviously clear to other, uh, uh, investors and to the open AI guys, how they're going to make money. And they're either going to try to become like AWS or they're going to try to move up the stack. Okay. So to your question about where's the value being created, we we've laid out a sort of a five layer model where you've got these generalized models at the bottom, then you have these specific models above it. So you might have a specific model just for tweeting, right? So if you go into Jasper right now and you look at their tweeting button, like generate me a tweet, it's real crap. I mean, it's just, you, you try it. It's bad. And what, what it's clear is that they need to create a tweet model that's specific for how you tweet, or they just need to borrow one from somebody else. They need to plug into somebody else's tweeting module that's specific. It's a specific NLP model for tweeting. And then you're going to have a specific models for, you're going to have specific models for e-commerce photographs where the lighting is just so and et cetera. So you're going to have all these specific models. And then you're going to have these hyperlocal models, which will then be, let's say, uh, I will train an AI to understand how my 12 engineers at my company like to code in Python because we have a particular flavor. We have a particular style of coding. And once the model trains on the, the code that the 12 of us have built, it will suggest things that are in our style. And so we will have a very specific model that's proprietary to us, that is closed and trusted. 
And that's what we're calling hyperlocal models. And in and in terms of the hyperlocal model and and in a specific example for Tweety, would that be okay, based off of like your last tweets per se, we are then we're then gonna localize this for it actually to sound like you, like it's actually from you. That's right. That's right. So you could, let's say, get access to a specific model for tweeting and then have it trained on your eight hundred tweets that you've already done so it sounds like you and it helps write stuff in your style. That would be a hyperlocal model that only you have. I mean, now, because your tweets are public, I could create a, a hyperlocal model for you that you don't control, and then I could write like you. But in most cases, a lot of this data is on closed systems, um, you know, in healthcare or in um, or whatever. So that's the three. So what are the four and five? So the fourth level is what we call the operating system or the API layer. So let's say that uh, and then above that is the application layer, the workflow, the, you know, think of, think of Salesforce as an application, right? But then they've got an operating system where they allow other people to build on top. They build applications on top of their API, right? Uh, and they, they're doing both. So that's, those are the next two, two layers. And, you know, you have defensibilities built into embedding with your application. Let's say Jasper embeds their software into, the workflow of a corporation, it's just a hassle to rip it out. So as long as they're doing a good job of bringing new AI models through their software into the workflow of the different people in the in the corporation, then why would you rip them out? A little bit like Salesforce or like Workday. You're just not going to rip it out. It's in there. It's working. Um, the embedding defensibility is a legitimate model. Uh, and I think that's what Jasper is going for. And they're probably going to try to move down be that operating system layer as well. I doubt they'll actually get into the AI models because they can then be free to switch out the AI models underneath and commodify those AI models and just go with the cheaper, better model every time, every month, every two months, whenever they need to. And the, the end user is not going to know the difference. So those are the five stacks. It's the application layer, the operating system, the specific models, the, uh, I'm sorry, those hyperlocal models, the specific models, and the general models. And, and we think that Looking at the world that way, at least for the next six months, <laughs> gives us all an advantage in thinking through the strategy about what companies we're building. Do you? It's it's interesting how you believe. It seems like the the base layer that's actually where maybe the are maybe there's um is a will become a commodity or essentially a commodity and kind of like the, uh it's a um who's the first to zero type uh, business right. Look, look, I'm talking with people about this all the time and, and I don't, I'm not good friends with all the guys who are running OpenAI, but it does seem to me that they're in a tough spot because when you get the AI writing prose as good as Hemingway, it's not going to get much better. Like it asymptotes in terms of how good the product can get from a, from a generalized model. When you get uh, a model building an 8K photographic image of a Nike shoe that needs to be sold on Amazon, it's not going to get much better than 8K with the right lighting. And, and that's all going to be reached here in the next 24 months, 36 months, maybe four years at the, at the outside. And at that point, the human being's ability to differentiate between that 8K model and an open source 8K model, which is charging one one hundredth the amount, is, is, is non-existent. So there's no difference from the customer's preference in terms of choosing you know, the quality of open AI. Remember, Remember how hard Intel worked to do Intel inside, mm -hmm. right? But really, as long as the computer works, I don't give a crap if it's Intel or not. Now, there might be some big corporations that are going to sign up with OpenAI and give them big contracts because they're scared or nervous or they want to have their hands held, 
And we've seen that before. I mean, Amex is a horrible service, but a lot of corporations use Amex, right? Because they're just scared. They want to say, well, I have Amex as high status or whatever. And they're willing to pay for that, even though it's a worse experience. Uh, so there might be some giant corporate deals done between OpenAI and large corporations over the next three years. But after three years, those contracts will expire and those guys will be open to use whatever general AI, you know, AI, model, AI models out there. So I, I think unlike many products like um, Google, which needs to constantly with its search beat back the spam bots and to give better and better uh, results and has a greater and greater surface area of the web to scrape and, and to, to rank for people, there's always a need for Google to get better. There, at some point, there won't be a need for the AI models to get better from a human perspective because our eyes just can't take any more pixels. We are actually the limitation. <laughs> we are the limitation. Yeah, they can keep going. Now, when AIs have money and the AIs can differentiate between different AIs, then maybe those AIs will pay for more AI. I don't know. But but for now, as long as humans have the credit card, th there's going to be uh, uh, an indifference between uh, GPT-5 and something else, number five, which will be eight months behind OpenAI's model because it's just going to, everyone's going to figure it out. So I think either they need to move up in the stack and try to get embedded and build some network effects. Uh, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they've got a plan and I'm just unaware of it and, and they're geniuses. I, I just haven't figured it out yet. How How do you think though, if you have on the application layer um, through, you know, APIs, you're, they're, they're maybe using the same database or, or similar databases. How then are you thinking about differentiation from that standpoint? Because, and to make sure it's not, you know, a, a commodity on in the actual application layer. Yeah, that's the tough part, man. I mean, I'm talking to tens of companies a week. Uh, we published our market map on nfx.com. There's an article about the five layers in our market map. People should check it out. And we published it because I was having all these phone conversations with founders and they were so excited to tell me about the market need that they've discovered and the product that they can build. I'm like, yeah, dude, I know. Everyone knows that. You have to think past that. You have to think toward how do you build the network effects? You have to think about how do you build your defensibility? You have to think about how do you build your brand? Because otherwise it's just all going to be commodified both at the lowest level and at the application layer because everyone understands it. Look, with most big technical innovations, as I've said, in, in the in the articles that I've published on nfx.com, there's skeptics. There was a lot of skepticism about the internet. It took years for people to decide it was real, like seven years, it's eight years. It wasn't until 2002 or three that people were like, okay, this thing works. And it started in 94. So that's like almost nine years of skepticism. And during that time, the small number of people who understood it were able to go in there and build really interesting businesses without a lot of incumbents coming in and breathing down their necks. And that's just not the case here. Everyone understands that this is a big deal. Everyone can see it and the incumbents can, can include it. So you're, you're asking great questions. And the answer is, I don't know yet. And so we're, we've invested in four companies over the last two years and we haven't made another investment in the last two months because everyone's having the same idea. So we published our market map so that I could stop having those conversations with founders. I'm like, go to the tab that says, you know, generative AI text. There's 68 companies that are venture backed that are doing exactly what you just said you want to do. I get it. It's a good idea. But stop. You have to you have to think past that. Um and so and so that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help people get to better ideas faster. What I think is also interesting based on how you're thinking about it with the five different layers. Normally, 
Um, I know investors love to invest in kind of like the picks and shovels. Um, and those type of, but, but this is a bit counterintuitive because you're actually saying, whoa, whoa the actual picks and shovel side, like the actual language um, and, and, and database part of, of this entire thing, you believe like that will actually be commoditized, which is, which is just quite, quite different. It, it seems like that to me. And I've heard this argument that the real competitive advantage is toward proprietary data sets. And that might be true in a hyper-local world. But in reality, it doesn't usually play out that way for the specific or the general AI models. And the example would be, uh, you know, because in the real world, you have to convince a customer to pay for your product. And they have to be able to see the difference between your product and somebody else's product, right? And so corporations in particular are really bad at differentiating between good product and bad product, right? So it's even in the, the old software world, we've seen that the people who win are people who sell better, not the people who build better product, okay? And, and in this case, I think it's going to be doubly so, that whoever has the sales team to get out there is going to win, not the person who has the better ML model, particularly because the, consumer, the, 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 the consumers of the ML models can't tell the difference between one and the other already. And it's so early in the game. So a year and a half from now, it's going to be impossible for them to differentiate. So having that data advantage isn't going to play out in the market in my mind. Like you'll have it, it'll be better, but their solution will be 98%, yours will be 99.2, and the customer doesn't care. So it's, I mean, it, 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 it goes back to your original point of maybe the natural limitations of the human condition, right, of, of people. And also just, just I think this overarching, like, look, people who have a lot of data want to believe that their data gives them a competitive advantage. So you hear from Google and from Microsoft that, oh, it's whoever has the biggest data set wins. Eh, everybody can get data sets now, dude. It's not that hard. And I don't mean they can get it today. What you did in the last six months, guys, I know you're listening to me saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, Curry. Well, I do, because all I'm saying is for the last six months, you've done something remarkable. But following right behind you, Within eight months, they will have replicated. Other groups will replicate what you did. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying there's no like competitive mode around these data sets. Another example that we see all the time is like in, in healthcare. People are like, I've got 25,000 kidney cancer like cases, and that's a proprietary data set I get from Israel, and I'm building an AI model to diagnose kidney cancer. Well, it turns out that if you get 2,500, not 25,000, your model is literally 98.7. And the 25,000 case model is 99.6. The doctors are diagnosing at around 88% today. Both of you are so far above the norm that both of your products are great. So it's whoever has more salespeople on the street is going to get it embedded and the customers are going to be happy with the product. So having 25 over 2,500 doesn't matter. And once they've seen what you've done, they can probably synthesize some data and then come out with something similar. Or worse yet, they'll just make a deck saying they can do what you'll do. And because the hospitals buy stuff so slowly, they're not going to decide to buy it for a year. And then they're not going to implement it for another year. So you have two years to actually build the damn thing. And in the meantime, the sales of the, of the company that had the data advantage to begin with, they can't get sales done because there's other salespeople selling the same PowerPoint deck. And they just can't, they can't. So we've seen how the data network effects play out in the real markets often, and they're not as great as everybody thinks. What's, what's also fascinating about this is obviously generative AI. It's a new, very exciting piece of technology. And you would think, I'd imagine in your due diligence process or as you are analyzing teams, you're very focused on the actual maybe product or the technical aspect itself. But what you're also kind of saying is that there might not be actually much differentiation 
but, uh, maybe in product, like, as you say, one company might be 98% right or 90, 99% right. Might not be much differentiation. So you maybe, uh, do you find yourself, um, then thinking about, you know, maybe the marketing expertise in the, in, in the founders. And I mean, how are you actually, um, what do you believe it, it kind of takes when you're analyzing companies in order to actually be successful in this area? Yeah, you have to have great sales and marketing. You've got to be really fast, right? Who's the most savage founder you can find, right? Um, there's a lot of people who have been working on ML for eight or nine years, and it's finally their time to shine. And they're coming out of Google, they're coming out of Mozilla, they're coming out of hundreds of different places where you and I didn't even know they were working on this for the last decade. And now they're like, now's my time to run a company and I'm doing this. And they're saying, I have a better AI model. I'm like, dude, you have a better AI model for like three months. Three months from now, your MI model will look like everybody else's model. And we're hearing rumors that GPT-4 is like a whole nother planet. Even though GPT-3 has already created, you know, the chat bot that everyone's ooing and eyeing about, the next one apparently is even another level. And then eight months or 12 months after that, someone will model out and make really cheap the GT GPT-4 level model, and then everyone will have it. It'll be cheap and widely available to everyone. So uh, it's been it's been challenging. So I look a lot at how how savage are the founders? Do they have a full team? Are they ready to go now? Can they get embedded? Have they found nodes that are not replaceable that they can attach to to create network effects? Um, do they have a chance to build a real brand in a space? Is there some level of trust that's required in a in a space so that brand will matter? Right. Like if I'm just doing marketing copy for a website, like I don't care about the brand of the AI I get it from. I just, I just need some good copy. I'm going to A B test it anyway. And so that's not, so Jasper is just, you know, going fast and being really aggressive. And that's why they're winning. It's wonderful to see. It's great entrepreneurship. So in some ways, it seems like you're maybe evaluating um, companies in generative AI similar to maybe how you would in maybe like a Web 2 environment um, where it's not so much about the technology itself. Um, but it's much more about network effects and maybe how you actually can, can scale, um, scale proper business. Is that, is that roughly correct? That's roughly correct. That's roughly correct. Um, I don't discount the fact that some of this stuff is hard and that certain teams with their ML capabilities are going to be able to evolve faster and keep fresh over the next three years while everything is settling down. I think that's, that's a requirement. My point is that it's just so many companies have this ML experience. What are particular use cases on the application layer that you're, you know, really um, excited about that 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 could make, um, you know, huge differences? And also, I'd imagine there's also a lot of noise um, that we're seeing in this space right now. What are maybe some applications that you actually are maybe uh, pretty bearish on? I think the important thing to say, particularly for the founders who are listening, is that it's not clear that Google and Microsoft aren't going to capture most of the value being created here over the next 36 or 48 months. It's not clear to me that the incumbents are at any kind of a disadvantage is if they're watching and, and adapting. And I believe they are. Um, they're not, uh, they're, they're, they're tech companies. They're not like, like the old world used to be. They're paranoid and they copy, right? I mean, Google has invented nothing. Google has copied everything. They've copied their search. They've copied everything. So, They've been very successful at just copying whatever is hot and just doing it at scale and doing it, you know, distributing it through their their search. And you already have obviously like in incredible distribution if you're Google. Right. So first of all, when it comes to how consumers are going to benefit from this, 
a lot of it four years from now might be coming from Google and Microsoft. Maybe they bought Jasper, maybe they didn't, maybe they just copied it and gave it away for free so that you could use their search engine. Who knows? It's all going to go back to advertising revenue in the end. So I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that how we do our email, how we do our texting, how we do our calendaring, uh, all that's going to change. How people, you know, dating apps, there's going to be dating apps that are going to be possible that Google and Microsoft won't do, but that will happen. There'll be therapy apps. You know, I mean, we, we have, you know, probably all of us should have therapy, right? I mean, every human should have a therapist. And right now, there's only 2,400 therapists in the United States. So they can't obviously be therapy for all of us, but that that will be possible for everyone to have a therapist um, that will be uh, be quite good. Um, the productivity of everybody in terms of their writing is going to go up. You're just going to have writing assistants. Uh, you know, look, if you go to the sort of highest end writing in the world, which was probably the Simpsons, okay, and how do they do it? They sit around a big table and they th- they pitch ideas to each other and they just bounce around. So all the all the eyes, the intelligences are sitting around talking to each other and bouncing around. So imagine if you can now employ two or three of those people to bounce around ideas with you in a room, a virtual room, where the AI is constantly suggesting stuff to you and you're culling through how productive you're going to be as a writer. Like you're going to have, you know, we could probably go and say, hey, GPT-4, write like The Simpsons. Give us ideas like The Simpsons. And it would probably not write the jokes for us, but it would certainly bounce around a lot of ideas with us and and we're going to be a lot more productive. Or if we want to do an album cover, right now most people's little podcast image or their album cover sucks. Well, with AI, everyone's going to have a beautiful one now. So the quality of the writing, the quality of the music, the quality of the images that we see is all going to go up for consumers. And the people who are producing them, your ability to make something really high-end is going to go up. It's not just going to be the very, very best designers who can do good album covers. Now it's going to be you because you can just sit there for 12 hours and hit the button and it's just going to keep giving you new examples until you see the one. You're like, that's amazing. And then you say, I'm publishing that. I published that and I'm publishing it under my name. So now you've got a whole team of Simpsons writers and Simpsons designers with you in the room to make you that much more productive. So as a consumer producing stuff and putting it out in the world, it's going to be a beautiful time. Uh, So all those things I'm excited about. That does sound uh, very exciting. I know that at, in, in your initial response, you were saying how, um, you know, Google and Microsoft, these are very obviously technology companies, very forward thinking companies. They're not just going to sit around. Where do you, I, I remember you mentioned dating apps is maybe one of the places that you don't think Google and Microsoft will go. What are some other verticals, um, applications that you just, don't, that you see that there's a pretty wide open opportunity when it comes to the innovation coming from startups um, as opposed to the incumbents? Um, you know, I think, um, there's probably a lot of opportunity in, in, in web design and building out the web, like the next generation of the web. Um, I think that's an exciting area. Um, you know, most of the websites in the world aren't built by Google and Microsoft. It's been left to other infrastructure companies to do, uh, some of which have gotten to the billion dollar uh, range in terms of valuation. Um, that could be good. Um, you know, uh, clearly in terms of, uh, imagery, like we're seeing all this sort of lens stuff and, you know, sort of face training, if you will, uh, people are sending those around on social media. Uh, it's exciting and fun. It's not going to be a big business unless someone turns it into something more network effecting, more subscription-y, more, you know, like, um, we've got a company called Latitude in, in Salt Lake City, which is on the, has been on the cutting edge of this stuff for years. And they, 
you know, have a platform for building subscription-based entertainment products uh, around that rather than I'm going to pay $3.99 and get Lenza to do it once and I send it around on Facebook and everyone claps and that's it. I mean, that's, that's like, um, that's like ringtones in 2002 on the, on the mobile phones, right? It's just, you buy it once and then you don't care again. Um, but there's going to be something, someone's going to come up with something really entertaining around me, around personalized. Like I'm going to, I'm going to have graphics or I'm going to have motion video of me and my family doing things because I can face train each of my family members. And then we can have an adventure like mission impossible or something. I mean, there's going to be stuff like that. That's going to emerge and, it's going to be up to somebody really creative to to figure out one of these network effect type platforms like a Twitch, but for this kind of a thing. So I, I think I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of stuff coming there. Um, you know, and clearly individuals are going to be able to make movies. I can write the music, I can shoot the video, I can make the faces, I can do the dialogue, I can do the voices, I can synthesize all this stuff. One human being is going to sit down and make like a 16 minute movie that next August when it comes out is going to blow us all away. That it was just one individual who did everything. Wow. That's, that's, um, that's amazing. I mean, just, I mean, it reminds me. So I, I come from an audio background and just the ability to, um, which has been around now for, for a long time, but, but what digital has done for the audio industry, being able to create music with, you know, um, uh, lots and lots of different instruments all by a person. Um, that you've seen, but in this realm, being able to create a movie with, um, with only one person, that's pretty, pretty unbelievable. It is. And, you know, again, let's not make the same mistake we always do, which is when the internet came out, we said, oh, let's do TV on internet. We'll do broadcast.com and Yahoo buys it for 5 billion from Mark Cuban and then shuts it down. Let's not do women.com, which was women's magazine online, right? That never turned into a big business. Let's do spinner.com, which was radio online. And that didn't turn into a big business. But what was a big business was people sharing digital photographs with each other in a network. But people didn't think of that in 94, 98, whatever. It, we, just us using generative tech to make a movie, that movie experience was very particular to the technology of the time. and. It might be that we can now flood YouTube with little videos that we generate. It could be that we flood Spotify with um, with music that we generate. But it might be that what ends up being actually really big is something that no one has seen yet, that is a new type of experience that is none of these things. And someone just has to invent it. So how I guess how are you analyzing what could be big versus what maybe won't be big. I mean, I know that you gave one example when it came to imagery um, and people creating avatars and that's you know great and fun, but it's probably not gonna be a big, uh, a pretty big business doing that. As an investor, how are, you, how are you thinking about what could be large and pretty substantial opportunities that have incredible network effects versus ones that actually you think, okay, cool, that's fun. Maybe it's, 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 pot, it's caught up in a little bit of the hype, but that's actually not that, not that interesting when it comes to being venture backable. Uh, first of all, I'm talking to, you know, four to six generative tech companies a day. Uh, I'm just talking to a lot of people and finding out what they're thinking, trying to help them move past the common thoughts everybody's having right now by giving them the market map and saying, come on, do, do something further than that. Number one. Number two, I am looking for the most aggressive, fast moving teams. Fast teams are going to make a difference in this market now that everybody understands it. Number three, 
I am looking for some of the typical signs of network effects, and we've published extensively about network effects on NFX.com. We've got 16 different network effects. And so when I talk to the founders, I'm looking to see if we can apply any of those 16 or if they're inventing a 17th one that we've never seen before. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it through that lens. Uh, and then I'm also thinking about uh, the sectors that they're in, because if you want to try to compete with open AI, good luck with that. Uh, you need $700 million like Anthropic got. Um, if, But if you're going into some sort of a, a big niche that people aren't thinking about, then that's a great opportunity. Just like just like in, uh, in Web2, uh, where people are finding niches that everybody underestimates their size, and you're able to build multi-billion dollar companies uh, kind of in the privacy of your, own, of your own zone. And I don't know that that's going to happen here, but I'm looking for something like that. Where... You know, I had on, um, I, I've had him on a couple times, but um, my last conversation with Mike Gaffari, who is um, one of the general partners at, at Canvas, and uh, uh, very grateful for him. He was he was an early supporter of the show. Mike's a great guy. Mike's a great guy. Well, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Um, one of the conversations that we had in our last one, and we devoted a whole episode to it, is what comes next after mobile. And I know that this is for certainly on a lot of investors' minds, uh, um, particularly you know investors in um, that focus on consumer, which the show is all about um, investing in consumer. And we talked through you know a number of kind of um, options. Whether it was could it be you know crypto web three? Could it be the metaverse? Um, could it be um, applications off of off of uh, building off of remote work? Um, we didn't get to generative AI. I, I, I'm kind of interested if you think that generative AI might be the next big, um, really like the next big thing after mobile that has been um, uh, currently. And also what, maybe a, a, a critique of those other um, examples as well. So look, generative AI, generative tech as we call it, uh, because AI is just the model, but it's actually what's the workflow and how does this come into our lives that is the tech. Uh, so we see it, the, the real business is around the tech. Um, so it's the gen, the gen tech or the generative tech area will be the next thing that really changes people's lives the way we live. I mean, obviously these phones have changed so much about society how we pay for things, how we entertain ourselves, how often we communicate maps. I mean, can you imagine moving around the world with all the maps we have? I mean, it's only 14, it's only 14 years old and we could never go back. Like if, if these, if we have an apocalypse and these things go away, we're all dead. Like none of us are going to be able to function without these things. And that was just 14 years ago. So that really changed everyone's lives. Now who benefited from that? Look, it was Apple and Google and about 40 apps, maybe, maybe a hundred apps that really benefited financially from that. And Google already existed and Apple already existed, right? So Apple goes from 40 billion to 2 trillion. Right? The incumbents benefited because they created the network effects around their operating systems, basically. There's no doubt that Gentech is gonna change how humans experience life on the planet, dramatically. I mean, imagine I now have a 24 by seven tutor about how to write if I'm a ninth grader. I can type something into the AI, it can rewrite it in the style of Hemingway. It can rewrite it to be more forceful. It can rewrite it to be more salesy. It can show me how to invert the sentence and change the gerund so that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all the stuff that writing coaches tell you that kids never learn, everyone is going to be able to get that for nearly free for like 60 bucks a year going forward. 
we're all going to become better writers. So it's going to change how we exist on the earth. Whether it will be the next big thing for venture capitalists to keep this machine going. I mean, this machine that has been built largely on a handful of consumer companies like Google and Facebook and mostly on SaaS. I mean, that's really what powers this whole venture ecosystem because the model is so good. The margins are so high. The retention is so high. The difficulty is so low, right? Uh, the, the ability to understand is so high. The simplicity is so high. SaaS has been what's driven this whole industry to exist. I mean, I think 7% of all Harvard Business School students went into venture capital as a job last year. It's like a thing now to be a venture capitalist, right? You know, being an entrepreneur is now a lifestyle. It's like a track. It's like a choice. Well, I'm going to go to Goldman or I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. What? Like, no, I mean, 20 years ago, the only people who are entrepreneurs had to be entrepreneurs. They just couldn't work anywhere else. They couldn't exist unless they were actually building and controlling and, and whatnot. Now you've got everyone deciding, should I be an entrepreneur or not? As if it's like an option where you'd color in the numbers. It's very, it's, the whole thing has changed. Anyway, the whole ecosystem has been driven by SaaS and by a few of these consumer companies. And that has fed the whole system for the last 20 years to make it what it is. So if the question is, what is going to be the fuel for this now giant ecosystem? I mean, if you go to Signal on NFX.com, right? Signal.NFX.com, we've got almost 30,000 venture capitalists who put up their profiles to say, please let me invest in your company, right? And they've all got their profiles and who they invest with and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, if you go to Google and you type in fintech investors, the first link is, you know, signal.nfx.com. You, you, get, you get access to all these investors. And in three years, there's going to be 60,000 people on Signal as everyone jumps in. So what is going to power that bubble? What, what, who, what is going to feed all these venture capitalists? Is generative tech going to do it? It's not clear. It's not clear because the portion of the value that's being created that gets captured by the incumbents versus startups is not clear yet. It it seems like a lot's going to be captured by the incumbents. And so I don't know if it's uh, going to be the next big thing. It's certainly fun. It's certainly creative. I mean, every 48 hours, I learned something new. I mean, we're really on the fractal edge right now and things are changing fast. So it's fun and uh, we'll certainly make more investments in the space, but will it will it drive? I don't know. Now, in terms of crypto, yeah, I mean, clearly the softwareization of money is coming. There's no doubt that over the next 30 or 40 years, the financial system as we know it will be reinvented, right? Instead of having 2,500 employees to manage $10 billion of assets in a bank, you're going to have six or eight or 15 employees managing $10 billion of assets because it'll be mostly software and everything will be adjudicated in the same way that 90% of all trades on stock markets are now done programmatically. Right? So we're moving toward software money. Um, you know, the the current community and the way of approaching it that we've got is probably not optimal. It needs a reboot and uh, hopefully we'll get one uh, around the whole crypto web three space. But there's no doubt that that will feed a lot of mouths over the next 30 years as that 40 years as that evolves. You know, look, let's be frank. My job goes away in 25 years. I mean, I think series B investors, their jobs go away in like six to 10 years because of algorithms and software and you know, I think that's something no one's talking about is that the financial industry itself is going to be replaced with software. But then would venture capital be replaced with software since you don't really have those data points from the beginning? Well, that's that's why I'm doing seed. We're going to be the last to be replaced, right? The, the seed investors where we sit, where we're putting in a million bucks or two and a half million bucks or two people with a PowerPoint, that's going to be the last to be replaced because we actually help people, right? We we invest in them and then we help help them do everything. And nobody really wants to do that. 
there's not as much money in it as investing at Series B and just deploying $40 million into something that's already working. You make a lot more money doing right. that. So no one wants to sit where we are right now. What's the next big thing? Um, you know, it's partly crypto. It's partly, it might be generative tech. It might not be. I mean, a year from now, everyone's going to say, oh, that was such a bubble. That was so hyped. Like, yeah, no, it was fun. That's what it was. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, uh, let's ride the horse that came into the, into the stable here. Um, uh, so, so yeah, and look, I continue to believe that, uh, you know, most of the world, most of the trade, most of activity is B2B. Most of global trade is B2B. And, and so I continue to believe in a lot of B2B marketplaces, but that's not consumer and your podcast about consumers. So we can focus on that. Look, I mean, I'd love to know your thoughts because I built consumer products between 99 and, uh, 2011. And then I uh, took a detour into enterprise software in the healthcare space, which was a big mistake. I don't encourage anyone to do that. Um, and then I made uh, a bunch of investments between 2009 and 2013 and things like Poshmark and DoorDash and Patreon and other things, all of which have gone on to be great. Hows, you know, they've gone on to be great. But boy, since 2013, it's been really tough for consumer compared to the SMB software like HoneyBook and payments and, and enterprise and SaaS software moving into marketplaces and other, you know, the business models around those things have been much more, uh, much better for seed investing than, than consumer. And I'm a consumer guy, right? I mean, I built four companies doing it and it's been disappointing to me, but, you know, I was anticipating doing 50, 50 with NFX when we started this in 2017. And it's been more like 80, 20, 80% B2B and, 20% consumer, maybe not even 10%. I mean, it's been low. So I'd love to know your thoughts. Like it's, it's been a cold, hard decade, the last decade. No, am I missing something? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I, I agree with you on the software side and, um, and maybe pure software investing. I think it has been a really challenging, but I mean, I know this gets said, um, a ton. I think you've also seen, you know, the, enterprise of consumer, consumerization of, uh, uh, of enterprise of this kind of merge where, what you're selling is maybe like an enterprise product in terms of that you're selling it to a more business type, but your actual pricing strategy is very, is very much catered towards um, consumer because you're kind of um, gearing it towards like an SMB. And so I do think that in those kind of maybe bottom up type um, uh, type businesses, um, I think I, I think that some of those have actually been pretty successful. Uh, but those aren't maybe your stereotypical kind of consumer businesses per se, right? Um, but um, just because you might be selling to a small business as as opposed to consumer, but I do think that some of the more consumer type, um, I do think that that there is a lot of consumer aspects to those businesses. Like it's it's much more marketing driven rather than sales driven, for example. Like Square and HoneyBook and that sort of thing, Shopify, Shopify, you know, and 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 those types of companies, I think, I, I think, have been pretty successful and kind of taking like the maybe consumer playbook, um, and and kind of adapting it, um, uh, to make more enterprise products. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that's that's what we've seen too. That's that's where we've ended up putting our money in the last decade. So, yeah, look, I think I think I'm hoping that generative tech will produce, you know, three to four. I mean. I'm hoping it'll produce about 10 unicorns and maybe two to three decacorns, um, like a Roblox or something like that. Um, but I think it's going to take some real aggressive entrepreneurship and some real new thinking. And I haven't seen it yet. People are still so enamored with, 
I can help. I can, it'll help my blog. It'll write my blog post for me or something like people are still digesting what it does. Um, and so I haven't really seen the breakthrough innovation in terms of no, 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 there's going to be a, a twitch like of a thing or the, you know, so I'm, I'm still looking for that. So any entrepreneurs who are, who are thinking that way and thinking boldly and have a really great team, uh, please, please come talk to us because we're in the market for that. No. And I, I appreciate your thoughts in terms of what could be maybe the next, um, I guess, platform for, you know, maybe uh, consumer applications um, uh, that uh, that could be here. Um, that's, uh, that's really interesting. When I think of Shopify as well, and I think of Shopify and it, kind of what it did for consumer entrepreneurs. And you, you had this kind of explosion of brands that were able to, you know, become brands because it was really cheap to kind of create um, um, their Shopify pages. And, you know, it t- took like an hour to like build one. Do you think that we're in this phase right now of Gen AI that we're going to see a ton of um, a ton of kind of a, a birth of entrepreneurship um, just based off of, you know, having um, uh, uh, being able to build kind of these these models um, a lot more kind of easily that you're going to just see kind of explosion of of entrepreneurs within within Gen AI? Gen AI? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we are going to see an explosion of it. I uh I know a lot of companies are pivoting into it like because their other businesses weren't working. Um, and so this is their next excitement and that's fine and that's good. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to jump in. I, look, let's be honest. There's a community of people who have grown up thinking that entrepreneurship is a color by numbers type of a thing. And that what they're doing is they're chasing a lifestyle. They're like, I want to be a successful entrepreneur. And so what they say is, well, what's hot? What will people invest in? And I'll go do that. And we saw that with crypto. They're like, okay, crypto's hot. I'll go jump into crypto. And there was a huge portion of that community who was there only to make money rather than, and they think that the purpose is to make money. Like I'm doing this startup to make money. Like I don't know anybody who's been super successful doing a startup to make money. You know, you do you, you do a startup to build something great. You build a just to solve a problem or just to do something amazing. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if I want to make this happen in the world? It's like people who like to do graffiti. Like you don't get paid to do graffiti, but then when you go buy it, you're like, there I am. I I saw myself. I made that in the world. People who are compelled to do that are the best founders. And there's a whole group of people who, you know, sort of sloshed over to crypto trying to catch that train because they thought they could make money. And you know, buy Cristal in Miami and stuff. And now they're kind of coming over to to Gentech, you know, just because that seems like the thing that they could raise money for. You know, and there are certain players like YC in the community who are 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 sort of promoting this idea of money first. Like you do something to raise money, you do something to sort of trick investors into investing in you, and then you build something. Um that that mentality is getting more and more pernicious. And we have to kind of sift through the founders who have that mentality to try to get to the real ones. Um, so yeah, we're going to see an explosion. I just don't know how healthy all that explosion is going to be. There's going to be some portion of of that explosion, which is going to be um, founded for not the right reasons, simply because they think they can raise money for something doing it. You know? 
Yeah, no, totally. And I and I think also just as I think about it in terms of other consumer companies, back to your original question about um, consumer companies in the past 10 years that have done well, another one that comes to mind is just more, especially since you're a marketplace investor, more managed marketplaces where um, something like Goat, where you actually have credibility, um, you have authenticity um, and kind of serving direct verticals and kind of the verticalization of of consumer. Like those have also been you know pretty successful um, in the past 10 years, but um, and kind of you know, becoming, I guess, more and more niche, which I know is also happening to many different other aspects of consumer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, platforms like whatnot have come out and, you know, looked at sort of, you know, live streaming of of commerce. Mm -hmm. And I think that seems like it's going pretty well. I don't know. I'm not an investor, but that seems like that that's been a good one. Yeah. I mean, live, live streaming, I think is, 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 is pretty interesting. I, it, it will be interesting to see how it, how that market develops. Um, what's, What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Uh, personally, there's one called Acid Dreams, which gives you the history of psychedelic drugs in the United States, how they became illegal and and what that whole thing was that has set us back 40 or 50 years in getting these drugs to help us with psychotherapy. We've really missed a generation or two because of mistakes that were made in the 60s around these drugs. and. Um, I think it's getting rectified now, but when you read Acid Dreams or you know how you know changing your mind, how to change your mind by Michael Pollan, you get a sense of the opportunity we have uh, to legalize and bring into therapy uh, these types of psychotropic drugs, um, which I think are going to alleviate a lot of the suffering that a lot of people have with their mental states. Uh, it becomes even more intense over the years um, as we become a more populated planet and more interconnected planet with more data coming in than we can handle. So um, I would say Acid Dreams and How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan are very good to open you up to what is coming, hopefully, that will be very, very positive for humanity over the next 20 years, um, which is the use of psychotropic drugs and therapy. So the number, and then the second thing, the, the book professionally that I think has inspired me a great deal is called uh, Scale by Jeffrey West. And it's it talks a lot about the network dynamics of the world in which we live. It it helps you understand the math that underlies networks and network dynamics and the networks of your cells, you know, the networks of the trees, the networks of animal populations. The, it, there's a math underlying our world, which once you see it, really simplifies the world and makes the world really understandable. And I've written extensively about this in things like uh, an article I wrote called um, Your Life on Network Effects and other articles we've written that are trying to make clear to people the underlying math so that the complexity and the chaos that appears to be the world, you actually start to see how it really works. It's, it's not that complicated. And, and Scale does a wonderful job of, of explaining that. I really appreciate these book selections. Um, James, I think you're very original. Um, I don't think we've had anyone that actually brought up, um, especially Acid Dream. I don't think that, that, that we have anyone I'll bring that up. And really, really glad um, your, your note on that. We actually did interview. Actually did an interview a psychedelic drugs company called New Life Health um, on the show. And um, yeah, I, I do think that it's very, very important. Um, and um, this, has been, this has been so much fun, James. Th- thanks so much again for your time. Absolutely, Mike. My pleasure. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with James. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you're enjoying this podcast, I highly recommend again to subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com. You'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of the latest consumer deals. Thanks for listening, folks. Oh,